0: Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash non Every little bit counts, and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. Everyone, welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and today we have on Jahed Momand as a guest. Jahed is an anarchist from Portland who went to the University of Illinois, where he got his Master's of Science in Biophysics in 2009. He's a former biophysicist, turned internet poker pro, turned data analyst, then UX designer, and finally product manager. He has a newsletter called Against Utopia that focuses on political science, philosophy, and science movements based around anarchism, knowledge, and power. Jahed, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Joel. For sure. How are you doing? Good. Just uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you about really esoteric anarchist (laughs) concepts.
0: (laughs) Hell yeah. What's it like there in Portland? How's, How's the anarchist scene there in Portland?
1: Oh well, I, I won't speak too many specifics also because I'm not super involved. I have a few projects that I am actively working on, but yeah, the anarchist scene out here is I think we talked about this before, but it's it's been pretty fractured for a number of years. There are a lot of different factions, some that don't even call themselves anarchists but do anarchism. And then and there's like some of your well-known names like Black Rose and all that out here in portland though lately uh you know there's a lot of cool stuff on the ground in terms of mutual aid projects and the like because just like everywhere else in america when you're driving along freeways we're getting a lot of tent cities and such people who need some solidarity in the face of police intrusion and all that kind of shit so
0: most of the same problems (laughs) yeah you describe yourself as an epistemological anarchist what does this mean to you
1: I'd say the stuff I write about, like I'm primarily interested in epistemic anarchism, but like uh, I'm not sure if I describe myself this way. There are other folks like, you know, Michael Laufer and Ford Reeves Vinegar, who are uh, essentially their movement is very much at its core an epistemic anarchist movement. And what that really means is that, you know, first. What's well, this word that honestly I don't even think any of us should be using this word if we're engaging with the broader public because it just makes us look like we're snooty or like academic. <laughs> but, uh, but epistemology is just the, the study of the nature of knowledge for the most part, like how do we justify it? How does it relate to concepts like truth, belief and things like that, the sources of knowledge and the criteria for it basically? And so epistemological anarchism is this really obscure movement, I think, for the most part that basically says that there are no useful and exception free methodological rules for how how we should grow knowledge and what knowledge is valid so it's kind of a radical stance that opens up a lot of bad possibilities at the same time as it opens up good ones so what i mean by that is like you know if you if you go and you shout things like this even without exceptions when you say like there are no useful or exception-free methodological rules governing the progress of science people uh, especially scientists might say okay so what what are you one of these energy healer types (laughs) are you one of these people who is like Trying to find you know a way to, are you a Dr. Mercola? Are yeah, you Yeah, get what, your chakras well? aligned or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's not really it. It's more that uh, the person who came up, who kind of spirited this and this community who kind of spirited this into existence, uh, was Paul Farabin, Imre Lakatos, who probably wasn't an epistemic anarchist, and then like the Stanford Disunity School of Philosophy. And basically, all they're saying is that the method that we're taught in school of like you know we see something we observe something in nature we form a hypothesis about how it works we design a controlled experiment and then we run that experiment and we interpret the results and we and everyone doing this in a community together figures out things that we then are able to derive objective facts about the world because we have direct access to reality in this way basically epistemic anarchists showed up and said that's all kind of nonsense it's a nice just so story it operates like that within a tiny sliver of science, if at all. And most of the time, what's actually happening is that we are basically making progress by any means necessary. And by any means necessary basically means like, again, you know, it opens up possibilities like, oh, well, chakras or, oh, well, magic. And no, actually, it just means that when we're onto something, There are non-institutional ways of knowing, there are other ways of knowing than strictly uh, what becomes this sort of like authoritarian scientific view, right? Because the problem is that science itself has become this institution that's impervious to criticism in a lot of ways. The practice of science itself today in 2019 has myriad problems. You know, we can get into some of this stuff later, but stuff like the problem of peer review, the problem of centralizing power over publication in a handful of outlets, and then politicizing those secretly, because scientists don't like to uh, admit that they're political like every other human, right? So they like to think that the things that they're doing are very objective and that there are rules for how their community works. But I can, if you just peel away even any layer of this, you'll find like there's a veneer uh, but been here to it that comes away that shows you, you know, the justifications for knowledge end up being mostly related to power and who has it and who's getting things like money and funding. And the comparison is not like. Really obviously wrong things like uh, what is it? Not cosmology, uh, astrology, right? And and then things like cosmology. It's more like we'll get into it too. But things like depression, the science of depression, the lived experience of depression versus the abstracted models that predict how it works in humans and the way that those models are constructed. And, you know, epistemic anarchists would say it seems like these models are justified more by how they can be streamlined for the production of medicines than they are really evaluated in terms of their effect on people who are depressed and their experience of depression, which I would argue as an anarchist is fully expected. Like once something becomes an institution and is bureaucratized, (laughs) how many examples do you need that... Basically, it gets off track and loses sight of the initial reason it came to be and then becomes a self-justifying phenomenon, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot of information in there. Going back to the epistemology thing a little bit, it seems to me that you you sort of arguably end up in maybe a pragmatist position. Am I right?
1: I wouldn't say it's predominantly pragmatist. I'd say that pragmatism actually surfaces as a viable possibility, right? Like I'm not going to say that like people like Four Thieves Vinegar and Michael Laufer are pragmatists. I'm not going to tell you that I can read their minds. But I think that if you look at the kinds of things that they're working on, for instance, they're basically just saying, hey, uh, insulin, we all know it works. Let's make radical access to that possible outside of the medical institutions because we can trust people themselves to make decisions about that on their own. Right. Yeah, I think. I think that's one of the key tenets of epistemic anarchism is that we don't need institutions to tell us how to use scientifically derived knowledge. And in addition, we can produce knowledge with the scientific sensibility itself. I can talk about the scientific sensibility thing too as well, but just to back up a little bit, what we see in like the academy is predominantly like a rationalist and empiricist approach to how science works. And Paul Fairbend, in particular, looked at the case of like Galileo and Copernicus and said, actually, it's funny that we treat this (laughs) instance of Galileo upending the dominant model for heliocentrism. And we look at it as a case of, you know, where he sort of rationally analyzed the uh, pathways of Mars and Venus and the moon and all these other things and came to a derivation reliant on his empirical research, when in fact, you look back on it, He relied on a bunch of stuff. He relied on propaganda. He relied on rhetoric. He relied on epistemic and aesthetic criteria, which arguably a lot of this aesthetic criteria still exists today in science. I'm talking about things like when someone says – when a physicist says the theory must be elegant or it must be simple as a criteria. You'll see that pretty often. Like, they'll be like, the simplest theory is there are these sort of like heuristics that uh, some physicists will double down on, which is things like, well, this theory is far too complex with too many edge cases and such. The simpler one is probably right. If You've heard someone use that kind of language. They're not really doing this thing that we think is like the strictly rationalist empiricist process of how science works. They're really participating in an aesthetic argument about it, which I'm not even saying is wrong. It's more about saying that exists, right? It's a thing we do. And it's strictly outside of rationalism, right? If you even look at this from the outside and you zoom in and say, all right, who really wanted to maintain heliocentrism? What were the social factors and how the power dynamic change, how the hierarchies change in the control of society? If you say those people who think this have been and have been telling you that are wrong, right? That's another consideration. It's never just about the facts, right? So that's really just the, another big part of this that Lakatos uh, that and Farabend and to some extent, even Thomas Kuhn were talking about when they uh, were talking about how science works, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what is your political backstory? You said you haven't always been an anarchist. Uh, you embraced oh, it yeah, recently. Yeah. And what other uh, political identities have you labeled with in the past? And how did how did you <laughs> come to embrace what you do now?
1: Oh, God. Yeah, this will be fun. So uh, just so everyone, I'll get this one out in the open. Probably like 13 years ago, I was like a hard right Lou Rockwell dot com, like townhall dot com libertarian and
0: wow
1: uh, i started there and then like for years i really started to soften especially through grad school through my like 25 to 28 or so the most the horrible shit was stuff like i think it was amash or one of the other shitty guys on that in that sort of ring where essentially they were just rephrasing what murray Rothbard was saying and i eventually i just kind of ran with some of these things and i was like yeah, monarchism, that sounds good, but okay, what if, you know, if everyone had their own private police, and my police fight your police, we're just kind of recreating hierarchies of power here. And it wasn't that I was against hierarchy. I just kind of thought of this as like, that sounds like it'd be way, way worse than what we have now, which is just shitty cops. And I mean... All cops are shitty. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> <laughs> but like, I'm not trying to say they're good ones. But like, we kind of have a these centralized ones right now who are just representing the, one of the greatest evils that ever existed in the state, right? But everyone being their own state sounds terrible, and you just look around at justifying the death and suffering that you see every day in front of you, and eventually, it just came too much for me to write off, man. And then eventually, like the Black Lives Matter movement, especially started taking off around when, when I was 28 or 29, and I got involved with that. And for a minute, maybe like a month, I was almost a tanky, and I mean, I was in the like the Chapo Trap House sort of milieu, you know? Yeah. Of the of the online tanks, because I was like, oh yeah, I kind of agree with a lot of these stances, and I was had a dally with socialism. But really, what brought me around to anarchism is the fact that you know, since grad school and in the interim period during that whole time. The place that I had kind of had the strongest draw towards, you know, criticism of authority was in science. It kind of started in grad school. You know, in order to make progress on a problem, you obviously have to find a way to conceptualize it. A lot of times that the conceptualization is a model of some sort. Uh, the model lets you make progress to some extent. I was working on systems in biology. And uh, a lot of the tools that were coming out at the time we were looking at, you know, really esoteric stuff like what is a single protein doing with a single piece of DNA and then from there making arguments of what's happening inside a cell. And I was looking at stuff like that. And then I was also looking at the fact that we keep seeing all these massive capital investments in like biotech, this, that and the other. But when you look at all the outcomes data, especially in cancer over time, you're just seeing like, are we actually making progress? Are we learning new things? Have the models changed? that was kind of when I was like, oh, there seems to be a lot of ossified models in this type of shit. And I realized one day, the moment came for me in like October 2017, when I was reading Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott at the recommendation of uh, this kind of guy, who's uh, he's like a philosopher. He's an online philosopher type guy. He writes a lot of stuff that I'd call philosophy, but he wouldn't call himself a philosopher. And I'm reading this book and I get halfway through it and I go, holy shit, this entire book is about how authorities use certain tools as forms of social control in order to extract resources money work all that kind of shit from populations under their control and principally where i was interested is i had i then finished that book and said where's the chapter on medicine, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, and that's when I realized, like, all this time, my skepticism about objectifying biology in numbers, my skepticism about chronic care management and doctors, all that kind of stuff was all really just driving at the fact that they had institutional playbooks for how to address these things that weren't working, and that when you call into question the basis for their knowledge and for their power, It's essentially an anarchist argument, and I'd basically just been anarchist without knowing it with respect to this particular area of life. And Very that's cool. why I, that kind of cracked me open. I looked at all the other arguments for this slowly. Like I'm working through the old canons of stuff here. Like, you know, my desk has a uh, some Kropotkin. Uh, sorry for anyone who's listening who hates him. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> a Kropotkin, Bookchin, Deruti and all those guys. Uh, not an endorsement. Just Just reading, you know. And that's kind of how I arrived at it. And I was like, yeah, actually, it seems to me that the core problem here is not really anything specific to like reformism. You know, like better X. It's really that in a lot of ways, the original hierarchies that were built up to justify institutions were rotten to their core, and are doing exactly what they should be. Actually, they're performing exactly the job they are made to do. Right. <laughs> and so that's kind of when I just was like, "Yep, yeah, I guess I'm an
0: anarchist." Wow, that that is super interesting. Lots of uh, interesting turns along the way. You mentioned medicine earlier, and you talk about mental health and stuff on your blog. And I wanted to kind of touch on that a bit. Why is your blog called Against Utopia, and why did you decide to start it?
1: Oh, sure. So unlike other blogs, like I look at your non-Serbian media thing, and I really love your logo <laughs> with the uh, the king with the knife through. So that's fantastic. Uh, mine really is the fact that probably for the two years preceding when I launched the newsletter and then the blog. I had people telling me, like, you got to write some of this shit you keep telling me about. You got to write this. You got to write this. Right. So I eventually just put a stake in the ground and said, all right, I'm going to just launch this. I don't care what the name is. I'll pick something. And I realized, like, for me, the name ended up being Against Utopia, because honestly, I'll probably pick a better one at some point. I just need to get it out. But what my idea behind it was, was that Whereas our current sort of context or context, like there are, you know, tens of them, I mean, societally or politically, right, are, you know, these sort of like neoliberal context where we we are told to vote and <laughs> we are told that a managerial government will figure these things out and we should believe in it and things like that and then you know in places like Russia and China you have a different view on that but broadly right like people who are justifying modernity and modern states and all that like they take this reformist slant i actually think that that slant is incredibly utopian like that's kind of the entire point for me which is that by virtue of saying that like we've already if you even go back to like the Francis Fukuyama end of history type stuff that in in the 90s when he published that book and he said like now that the Russia that Russia has fallen we can enter this period where like modern liberal democratic capitalism was going to take us to the next stage and we all we got to do is iron out the wrinkles i think that is utopianism of the highest order yeah. because it irons out all of the wrinkles in your various ontologies and epistemologies. And what I mean by that is I really got to find a better pitch for this. But basically it means that these people pretend to some amount of like complete knowledge that all they need is time and tools like means testing or, you know, a number of other things that will let them get us to the right policies where we all get prosperity. And I think that that is like, devastating the utopian. And one of the tools they use is things like heroic simplification, which is what um James C Scott talks a lot about and the examples he draws on are things like, you know, the British people when they colonized Tanzania, they looked at these farms these people had and they were chaotic and they were just like, what are these dumbasses doing? Right? Like, they why would you put this plant next to that one and the other? Yes. And there was a lot of like pragmatic practical knowledge these people had gained about how things grow together over time to minimize their work and all that, right? And the British, the brain geniuses they are, they they aspire to like perfect rows of exact types of crops that would be legible and easy for to tax and all that. And that is really just an act of heroic simplification that optimizes the level of one plot, optimizes the level of 10, optimizes at the level of town, right? And that eventually falls apart because you're abstracting away parts of the knowledge and saying it doesn't matter, but it does. Right. And so there is no utopia, I think that is going to be gotten to that way at least. And I honestly, I don't even think the idea is a good one. I think, I think we should be against it because it will always come at the cost of crushing someone's interests, neglecting some party's knowledge, neglecting some party as an object, othering somebody. Mm -hmm. And that's where, that's where I kind of came from with it.
0: Wow, well, maybe I got a self-crit because I often use utopia in a in a positive way on this podcast and in general. But, uh, would you say that behind utopianism, there is this sort of lingering spirit of the tyranny of certainty? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I would say that, like, only in a utopian sort of approach could you even say that you could get to certainty on certain things, right? And the tyranny of certainty, right? I, this is, that's a really good way of putting it because this is kind of what I'm trying to get at when I fumble my words around with things like, you know complete epistemologies and ontologies you have to actually pretend that you can know all the potential consequences of your actions the creation of new objects when i say objects i mean of all types i mean things like the internet i mean things like the computer i mean like when you're trying to sit there and legislate your way to utopia there are going to be things like this that present existential challenges to your power and you're going to ha- and I looked at places like China and even America, right, where you're like, great, uh, how do we deal with this? And then that sort of managerial neoliberalism comes in and says, here are the tactics for it. Have server farms, have bots, have surveillance capitalism. And then you are tr- you're really just struggling so hard to get a kind of certainty around this problem that will never be in your hands. And what do you do? What's the output? It's things like putting Chelsea in prison. It's things like murdering entire families of people by accident because they bet the behavioral markers of your surveillance capitalist uh, system right (laughs) so yeah absolutely i completely agree
0: well i can't take credit for that that's robert anton wilson and um not sure if you're familiar with him but i think that you and him would find a lot of common ground
1: yeah i absolutely have to read him because he's on my list of stuff because i've been told now by at least three people that like okay you need to read Robert anton wilson if you haven't yet and i was like nope I've mostly been on this nonfiction kick for 10 years, except for a couple breaks for Ursula Le Guin. <laughs> so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, he's yeah. got he's got um, some nonfiction also. But yeah. Okay. So there's just so much interesting shit with what you're saying. I want to continue on the topic. I've got so many questions for you, but I, I got to get this one last question in before we move mm-hmm. on to the next one. Sure. Um, so do you think that there might be a difference between authoritarian utopianism versus anti-authoritarian utopianism?
1: You know, in the way that I set it up, I almost think that the anti-authoritarian one is gonna collapse into an authoritarian one. I think that the key thing for me, really, is that you have to have very strong defenses against bureaucratization, and it's hard to say what those are, right? Because almost every bureaucracy that's ever created in order to execute against some kind of vision ends up justifying itself instead of looking towards the vision, right? So you have to have some sort of both an information mechanism and some sort of opt in, opt out, or contract, or something. Kind of everyone is shri. Every anarchist is shrieking on this podcast. Contracts, <laughs> like the, <laughs> the, the point hey, being d- the like, Tuckerites
0: wouldn't be. And by the way, <laughs> Robert true. Anton Wilson said that he was the last Tuckerite alive. So,
1: right. I remember hearing. I think he told me <laughs> that a while ago too. Yeah, absolutely. But the point being that like an anti-authoritarian utopianism, if it's possible. Again, I just think it's going to be really hard because everyone's idea of utopia is different. You have to have you have to maximize exit. You have to and maximally respect individual freedom. But you also have to guarantee the basics of life. So, you, you know, I'm just talking about things like enclosure and you can't and, prior, and abolishing private property. Right. There's a lot of things here which are not new ideas that I'm still working through myself. But when I think through anti-authoritarian utopianism, it almost sounds like an oxymoron to me because every individual's idea of it could be different. And that ends up being like, how do you justify, how do you solve those differences of opinion? And we know how the state solves those (laughs) representative government contracts, and then eventually, if you disagree, jail and guns,
0: (laughs) right? Like, What's the problem with solving them pragmatically and understanding that people have different desires and maybe the project is to figure out the way to work out our differences peacefully?
1: I completely agree. I also think that this sort of approach to utopianism could actually be fruitful if you solve the problems of large scale collaboration. So far, the problems of large scale collaboration seem to be more easily addressed by things like economic and legal violence. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's kind of for me, like, I don't know enough to say what that looks like yet, but I think that there are definitely possibilities. Like I work in technology, so I'm very closely watching things like developments in blockchain not cryptocurrency so much but blockchains as global information processing mechanisms and as ways to make and break contracts with each other in very specific uh, circumstances and also just the ability to make to help people collaborate on a large scale towards things one project in particular not that i want to get us off track too much but the the aragon project is a very cool one to look at because. Basically, their mission statement is making extremely powerful organizations with their technology. So essentially, when you think about the way that corporations or companies or organizations of any kind are set up today, they're all subservient to a state. So basically, they're trying to build software that gives you the freedom to organize however you want collaborate across borders without any intermediaries, create your own organization's bureaucracy-free or with your own rules, and have the decisions, voting, finances, everything agreed to and stored in a blockchain with rules set up however you want them to be. You can be democratic, you can be consensus, whatever you want. So yeah. I think there are little pockets of freedom like that that point the way towards, like, what could it look like to have large-scale collaboration and anti-authoritarian utopianism? This could be one of them.
0: That's really interesting. Moving on a little bit, There's an interesting line on your website where you say that you draw on James C. Scott's legibility, Mm -hmm. the idea that people or groups of people in a position of power make their subjects legible to them for the purposes of exploitation of resources via bureaucratic modernist procedures. What does this mean?
1: Uh, Sure. So I think it's best to think about it through an example. And this just punched me in the face when I read the book the first time. So he was, don't scare me, whoever's listening to this on the actual history and all that, I'm just going to pull one that I remember. I might get details wrong, but the overall point is that I believe it was like, it was either 13th or 14th century Europe, and Scott was talking about how a lot of the nobles of England and France were looking at things like smallholder farms. Now, it's pretty difficult to tax smallholder farms because, kind of like the Tanzanian example, they're all over the place. They're growing a little bit of fruit here. they have they have a communal area for grazing their animals. They have any number of things that make it difficult for a person who's representing the state that's trying to tax them to do their job, right? And do the job of saying, how much of that do you own? How much did you make? How much do you own the grant the state granary? Or, or you know, for the purposes of like even going outside of resources or at least saying what the resources are. How many humans can you give us for military service or civil service? How much food did you produce that we can take a cut of and all that kind of stuff, right? Now, I think this legibility concept is really interesting, not because it's necessarily like an objective fact, but because it it gives you an idea of the trade off that's necessary for the stability that comes from centralization and centralized government, right? So Scott, in that example, ends up saying that basically what ended up happening was that nobles, actually had an incentive to keep the peasants on their land as illegible as possible. One of the first places where they were able to start to map plots was in their colonies when they began centuries later to colonize places, because nobles knew that once your resources were clear to the king, it's very easy to tax you. So even back then, people were like, yeah, we need to keep our shit intentionally vague, right? And so this legibility idea then when it came to the quote unquote new world at the time, you had things like cadastral mapping, which basically was the first plots. Now, if you go, if you're in America and you're like, what is the, you can literally go to your local government and look up a cadastral map, and it's just a map of everyone's property lines. And this literally makes the land that you sit on legible to the state so that they can very easily derive resources, make a surplus, and execute actions that let them exert power over you, right? So, this concept, I think, is. Actually, eminently extensible to other domains, which is really what wine blog is about, is extending it into medicine. Because I read that book and I said, "Where's the section on medicine?" <laughs> right? Like, because how the formalized bureaucratic procedures are developed in medicine that are then used to include or exclude people for a particular market in the pharma industrial complex right Uh, it's kind of a different bent of looking at the job of medicine not as you know to heal or whatever the hippocratic oath is but more to say how do i find customers how do i gain control of them how do i make sure they have a way to pay me for the stuff i make and how do i make sure the government says i can do this
0: Right, right. Right. Yeah, totally. And I know that you expand on this a little bit in one of the articles that you got published at C4SS. And I hope to talk about that a little bit a little later in our conversation. Mm -hmm. But for now, I kind of wanted to touch on your newsletter. For the first series of the newsletter, you chose to write about the epistemology of depression. And in the first letter, you said you chose to do this in response to the mainstream scientific backlash of Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections. Mm -hmm. What's Johan's book all about? And what's your take on the whole situation?
1: Sure. So essentially, his book is a sociological approach to depression. His argument is that the... Organization of groups in society and the way that we you know, we live in a society, uh, but uh, the the way that he's kind of put this, <laughs> I just couldn't help myself. Anytime someone does that, I'm just like, oh, we live in a society. But, uh, <laughs> but the point being that his his point is that the um, how we've ended up where we are, the sociological causes of depression are have been neglected. That's why he calls it lost connections and that they are a major input to why depression is on the rise. So he cites things like, you know, the responses to things like the Hamilton Depression scale. You know, do people feel like they have hope in the future? That stuff is on the rise. Suicides, why are they on the rise? The oppression of work, commuting, all that kind of stuff. Now, there was a small mainstream scientific backlash amongst people who are I guess you'd call them like biopsychiatry and psychiatric medicine people who are firmly on the side of legibility, I'd say. Like they they have objectified the depressive state in people and they're like, look at these tables. The effect size of this drug shifts their response on this quiz every month by this much. We've solved this problem. The problem is not that we have the wrong conception of the inputs to depression. The problem is that we have not scaled access to these drugs to everybody who needs them. And my take on that situation is that is horrific bullshit. I haven't got to the end of it yet, but I'm, I'm working on the next essay. But uh, my take on the situation is that both things matter, actually because the sociological and the psychological inputs have a physiological effect like this is not this is not at all like a, a racy statement if you look at some of the literature on this but a handful of reviews which I've also kind of deconstructed show that like your perception of your own circumstances in the future can actually affect the inflammatory state in your body. So I'm talking about the inflammation in your brain, the deployment of cortisol and other hormones that increase inflammation, the deployment of serotonin your perception of your own circumstances can affect those levels getting dominated at work having a really shitty job having no way out of that being short on rent all these sorts of sociological causes end up manifesting physically right and that's not a racy statement at all it's not the same thing as like you know chakras and energy healing and shit so i started writing about this because i would like to show people how you get to a point where a bunch of scientists who can perform the ritual of science can castigate you with data tables and say, "Ah, oh, you idiot! This is all that there is." Like, how do we get to that, right? And why is that not the full picture? You know, it's not even—I'm not even treading new ground here. I'm going to quote Robert Sapolsky, who's a sort of famous physiologist, primatologist, and and psychologist who he wrote a book a couple years ago in 2017 called "Behave." It's kind of his magnum opus, and it combines. Every level of this ontology of nature and nurture that we just talked about, he starts at the level of a single gene and what's happening when a sort of psychological stimulus of some kind, you know, quote unquote, good or bad happens to the organism. And through each successive chapter, he moves up in that ontology, he moves up to neurons, he moves up to organs, he moves up to the level of behaviors between people, behaviors of groups. It's really a fantastic book but the overall point of it kind of happens in the middle of it it's a really great little point he makes which he says that at this point he goes there is no real and he ended up being mostly proven right on this front absolutely that's at least with respect to depression he said there's no point in saying that the gene is responsible for something or that the environment is responsible for it What these are is likelihoods that are increased or decreased by a particular gene being in a person and that person being in a particular environment where it becomes, you know, likely or much more likely or much less likely for that particular state to manifest. So he is all about gene environment interactions and that that is the sort of level that you should be looking at these things. An example is... um, There is a serotonin transporter called 5 httpr and for the last 20 years, people have been doing like genome-wide association studies of this going like, let's try and find out if having 5 5 httpr influences your depression risk, and like reams of papers were built up on this, and then very recently, a great review was released basically saying that this is total nonsense, and a lot of people have kind of shut down their 5 httpr studies. They realize that years later, it doesn't matter. But it's not necessarily that it doesn't matter. It's that if you have a particular variant of 5 HTPR and you happen to have a shitty job where everyone yells at you every day, or your shitty boss, it moves the goalposts on you every day, or you're super precarious and you're working part-time, then having that plus the other sociological, you know, somewhat causative factors leads you to a situation where you're more likely to be depressed, right?
0: Yeah, that seems clearly intuitive to me. I, don't, I, I couldn't imagine it being solely one or the other when it comes to that. But, you know, we see this a lot in. we see a lot of depression in radical spaces. Like, why does it seem that so many radicals suffer from depression? And what's the best way to approach this issue? Oh,
1: man, I think about this one a lot. My theory on this comes from a psychological theory uh there's this macro theory of behavior change called self-determination theory i actually think that a lot of radicals should learn about this just because it opens up so much more space for us to talk about ourselves our problems and our agency in the world so first there are three tenets of it the the basics of it are that every human has basic psychological needs for autonomy relatedness and competence autonomy I hopefully don't need to speak too much to on the anarchist podcast, but basically we want to feel like we have agency in the world and that we can affect change in the world, right? Uh, relatedness is that we seek to make new connections with people, have have rewarding relationships, and deepen those relationships. And competence, we seek to just get better on the things that we want to get better at and feel a sense of self-efficacy, and also just a perceived sense of self-efficacy. Now, when I think about the average radical's life that I know about. When I think about autonomy and affecting change, and I think about the movements that I haven't been a part of in the last 20 years, you know, I'm talking even 30 since the WTO, right? When I look at that, I really think that our need for autonomy is super difficult to fulfill, right? It's not that it doesn't get fulfilled, it constantly is. I look at successes, like momentary successes even, like No Dappel, Occupy, some of the people who are working with Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, people who are doing border relief, you know, going out there and forming autonomous movements to give people water and food or crossing the border, right? There are wins, right? But it's really hard for us to get the sort of acknowledgement of our autonomy in the world on a constant daily basis. I think that need to affect change and to feel like we can change the world, like actually have some agency, is extremely difficult for a lot of radicals, man. And I think that self-determination theory basically says that if you aren't fulfilled on that front, it will lead to things like systemic inflammation, like all the things you see almost in like solitary confinement. There are reams of studies that look at stuff like this, and the lack of autonomy has a very real lived physiological impact. And I, that's why when I look at, you know, why are so many radicals suffering from depression, it's kind of expected almost from the, from the first principles of self-determination theory, you know?
0: It's like if we weren't aware of our lack of autonomy, maybe so many of us wouldn't well, suffer from that. <laughs>
1: that. That might be true, but it's funny because you can run with that argument a lot of ways, right? It's almost like the fucking red pill argument, right? (laughs) Like, uh, would you rather take the blue pill and go back to, you know, thinking that voting works? (laughs) (laughs) God damn. I honestly for me, I it's probably it's a problem I deal with, man. I have a five-year-old son. Uh So I, I think about this shit all the time where I'm like, what am I doing today? Not, not that my kid's life is the only one that matters. This is the one that, this is how I think about it. I think about it as he's going to be in a world of people that need to support, that he needs to support, that need to support him. And what is that going to look like? Because it's really not about him, right? It's about like, what does that world look like? And how do I act to bring that around about today with my friends and affinity groups, right?
0: Yeah, uh, definitely.
1: But yeah, I think that's like kind of a, the short-ish answer to why a lot of them are depressed. I didn't even talk about the thing—the precarious jobs that these these folks work. I'm not going to include myself here because I work yeah. in technology. Yeah. I I do a lot in in terms of what I can to give money to everyone who needs it. But like, I'm not one of those precarious people. My was I was precarious as fuck growing up. I was an Afghan refugee, right? But uh, my 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 parents did the old immigrant sacrifice story that makes boomers think this place still works, right? Wow.
0: Yeah. <laughs> wow. I don't know if you want to go into this much, but you mentioned you had a kid. Do you have any thoughts on parenting in an anti-authoritarian fashion?
1: Oh fuck yeah, absolutely I do. <laughs> it's funny, my parents were here visiting for my kid's birthday this week, and I, we have a lot more frank conversations these days. My dad is kind of a Trump-supporting at this stage in his life, Fox watching like fifteen years, brain rotted type conservative. Which I don't know if that shocks people, but he's an Afghan refugee of the of the Soviet Afghan War, right? So
0: yeah. That doesn't seem like it would go together very intuitively. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, not really. But I think that
1: just to take a slight detour here, I make sense of it this way. He's been on SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, for 15 years from depression, bipolar depression, right? So when you are in a position where this society tells you that none of the skills you have are useful, he hasn't been employed for a long time, that you you should just stay home and take these drugs. And a talking head on TV tells you that this is not your fault. It's actually the fault of all these people crossing this border, of gays, of trans people, of women, of black people. I'm not surprised that my dad is into this shit. You know, I'm not excusing it, but I'm just saying, <laughs> when you think about it from that perspective, The message just fucking sells itself, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah, it's kind of programmed into it.
1: Yeah. But anyway, anarchist parenting, I was telling them, I was like, man, they asked me like something about whether or not I thought they had done a good job. And I was like, you did as good a job as you could. And to be honest, speaking to you both, the institution of parenting is rotten to its core. Like 10% of the time or 25% of the time, he does what I tell him because I'm bigger than him. I could do like whatever I can to limit the fact that what I'm doing isn't coming in its core from a place of violence. But when you are a small child and you try to put yourself in the position of that person, when I even if I get mad at him, it's like the end of the world. Right. So like trying to be an anti-authoritarian parent, it is really fucking hard. And it really shows you really quickly how much of a piece of shit you are if you have any self-awareness, actually, (laughs) because, uh, you know, just kids, kids have their own program. Everyone does. Kids have their own agency. They are always constantly trying to exercise it. It doesn't line up with yours all the time. Maybe any of the time if your influence wasn't there. How do you negotiate that effectively? Should you even negotiate it, right? These are the types of thoughts that fly through my brain all the time. It's very difficult because here's the thing, right? I absolutely want to have a kid who is free to express all of his agency in the world that he wants to. When he steps out of this house and goes somewhere else – He's also got to have a feeling for, you know, how these institutions he interacts with, how they got to be this way and what they expect of him. Because, like, man, if I do nothing, I actually respect what ends up happening. Because kids kids are pretty damn smart, and mine is no exception. They don't actually need a lot of the shit. And I'm talking specifically about what school is doing to kids at age five, right? So it's very hard, man. And I constantly have to be like, I have to have a balance between, like, okay, look, Clearly, this thing I'm asking you to do is stupid. Hey, let me spend some time trying to get you to understand why we're doing it. Let me I just think of all the words I have to go through. And I have to respect your intelligence and assume that you'll understand that I what I'm saying. Right. And it is hard. It is trying. And it's worth it. I think, actually, if you want any kind of real relationship with your kids.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean I, I am so appreciative that you were thoughtful enough to even consider those things because it seems like we need so much more thoughtfulness when it comes to, to child rearing. Absolutely. <laughs> you know?
1: More than like a slavery contract. Right. <laughs> a birth and, certificate and who you uh, belong to. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And to be clear too, you know, amongst as I've gotten older, I've forgiven my parents for so much just because the only people that I don't reserve this level of nuance for are cops and military, basically. <laughs> because, And what I yeah. mean by that is like, people go like, oh, but those people are poor and they need a way to feed themselves. And I'm like, that's the only line that I draw and say, I understand those things, but fuck them. Um, <laughs> but with parents, right? Like the entire institution of child rearing is so fucking reactionary and controlling. And then at the same time, they're responding to things like we left this country with our house bombed out. We came here, literally came here with less than a hundred dollars in our pockets. My mom got typhoid in India. My mom was raised by my grandma. Bless her heart. I love her. She's 95 years old. She loves me. All she does is pray for me every time she sits down and faces Mecca five times a day. But she was a horrible misogynist, actually. Like she had five boys and then my mom, my mom was her youngest child. My mom's upbringing was absolutely shitty. She was the slave of that household. She never really told me much of this stuff because it makes her super sad, but she began to tell me this stuff recently. And I began to understand how she raised me because I always had kind of a feeling like she babied me too much. She did way too many things for me. Man, Joel, I didn't do my laundry till I left for college, right? And I looked at it and I had so much. I even had grievances for this. Like I was aggrieved because I was like, I, I thought for most of my life, my reaction to her expectations for me. Was that you know, like for instance, for example, with like grades, she was a doctor in Afghanistan and she had perfect grades basically her entire life. Everyone talks about this, and she basically would tell me as, as young as like seven or eight, she'd be like, "You don't have to do any of this stuff. I want you to focus on your studies." I was terrified of making mistakes till I was like twenty five, basically. I actually kind of held a grievance with her and I was like, "I'm not going to raise my kid this way," but I realized that that's just a reaction to her parent, to her, to her mom. Her mom made her do fucking everything. Like, my uncles were telling me that they, they remember her being 20 and sitting there stirring a pot of stock and reading her fucking anatomy and physiology book for her exams, right, at the same time. When there are five fully grown men in the house who could do any of this shit laying around, right? So I think about that and I'm like, uh, we can all forgive our parents a little bit at least. The entire institution of parenting is reactionary. We have to find a way to do better.
0: Yeah, I feel you. <laughs> Moving back to depression a little bit, yep. what can we learn from squirrels, bears, and bats?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> why I was just thinking of like clickbait titles for my second newsletter. What I what what I ended up trying to tell people here is that, you know, if you think back to when I was talking about the nature of nurture, is that a lot of the backlash to Johan Hari's book came from, you know, biological psychiatrists and people who were like, yo, this uh, this is a solved problem. We've got effect sizes. We've got controlled studies. We know what's going on here. We don't even need to have an abstraction of the environment to test many of our things with here. We know that so-and-so gene or so-and-so serotonergic system is influenced by these drugs, and here's how. Now, what I want to talk about with squirrels, bears, bats, and locusts is that these are models of depression that have been observed, and they're almost a century old, some of them, and they completely contradict the models of depression that we have in humans. So let me all just kind of get into one of them real quick. Squirrels, I think, are pretty interesting. Squirrels and locusts uh, in particular. So The red sheet ground squirrel is an Asian squirrel. There were a number, like dozens, probably maybe something like 60 studies that were done mostly by Russian, Mongolian, and Chinese scientists in the mid-20th century. And what they did was they went in and they looked at squirrels seasonally, and they measured things like 5-HTP and serotonin. So 5-HTP is one of the precursors to serotonin. And what they wanted to see was just like <laughs> at the beginning, was just like, hey, what if we give this, you know, this squirrel or this rodent or whatever, a shit ton of serotonin? Let's see what happens. Very replicable result is you induce uh, what's known as insulin insensitivity, and they get fat, they develop torpor, and you trigger hibernation. It doesn't matter what season it is. Actually, a very effective way to make animals that hibernate get into hibernation. Is by just increasing serotonin. So then they outside of that, they went and said, okay, great, what happens in actual animals going out there in the in the world as they're you know, doing this? And there are some very nice graphs, which, you know, if anyone's interested, just hit me up or read my second newsletter. I've cited all this work that show that, yeah, bears and squirrels, bears, especially in the last 20 years, they have even done some genetics work on them and shown that there are certain parts of their genomes that become unraveled, that are transcribed and produce proteins that then cause torpor and insulin insensitivity. And this insulin insensitivity causes them to store some fat. They slow down. They find a place to hibernate. And it's very specific. Now, the interesting thing is that this all seems to happen in relation to a perceived lack of resources in the environment, right? So if you thought that serotonin, you know, is the upper, right? Like it's the it's the upper chemical, it makes you happy and all that. You would expect that if you injected animals with it and then also looked at the animals' uh, sort of uh, native production of this themselves, that they would pretty much track with behaviorally with some of the things that you'd see in humans. Why would it be completely different in a highly conserved system that occurs in every animal, right? Why would humans be so different? Right. So then my other favorite one, which really drives home the perception point, is locusts. So grasshoppers become locusts, right? There's like nine species of them that do that. And what they end up doing is, so this one is just fascinating. When the grasshoppers get too close to each other, their hind legs and their forelegs, they scratch next to you, like they'll scratch each other, and this scratch releases some inflammatory compounds, histamines, estrogen, serotonin, right? These cause local inflammation, and the neurobiologically, this is interpreted by the grasshoppers as, oh, we're really close together. If we're really close together, it probably means that resources are gonna run out soon. This triggers a huge increase in serotonin. The increase in serotonin shifts the energy production of these grasshoppers. It shifts them from primarily getting like something like 89 or 90% of their energy from mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation, which is really efficient, as a kind of like a quote-unquote higher order energy production because it's not found in bacteria and it evolved much later. And it shifts it to glycolysis, which is a little more wasteful, produces lactic acid, is more inflammatory. Now, what that ends up doing is it shifts the grasshoppers from, you know, just being their normal little hippie hobby grasshopper to locusts. The locusts change pretty rapidly, the entire colony becomes locusts, they devour everything, and then they sort of they're just assuming that everything's gonna go away. So they stay alive, the colony stays alive, reproduces itself, you kind of start the cycle again of grasshoppers to locusts. Now, what does that have to do with depression? Well, it seems the one thing that all these things have in common is an organism's perception or understanding. I don't want to give understanding to animals. Some scientific anarchist will shit on me, but I'll, I'll take back understanding. I'll say instead that there is some sort of perceptual system, chronobiological right, like circadian rhythm or something that basically when resources start becoming scant, when the animal starts not eating as much, they kind of trip the increase of serotonin, glycolysis is increased, inflammation goes up, the animal stores fat or, store, or does some strategy that lets it get a lot of resources because it thinks that things are, are not going to be so great, right? It's preparing itself for winter. Now, how does this relate to depression? Well, the current generation of depression drugs all purport to increase serotonin. They're all very complex too, but they increase serotonin and they purport that they solve this problem of experienced depression. The problem is that when you shake out the actual results, about 35 to 40% of the people who take these drugs experience some mitigation in their symptoms. Another sort of 20 to 30% experience no change. Uh, Another small percentage experience worsening symptoms, something like 15%, and then the rest, from one to 5%, experience increased suicidal thoughts and other really bad things, right? And so if I look at this, I'd say almost all of those bad effects to nothing effects should be expected because we know a lot of the animals where the serotonergic system has evolved, it's actually helping them store energy, slow down, and prepare for a future that isn't necessarily, it's going to be a little bit hard to go through, right? And so if you compare that that behavioral response between them, I think it's completely expected that if you increase the availability of serotonin uh, at the neuron, you're going to get this kind of effect. And that's kind of what squirrels and locusts and all that have to do with depression.
0: Well, that last question was based upon your newsletter, obviously. And Mm -hmm. in the same series, you talk about the ways in which medical knowledge has been built upon the exploitation of black and brown bodies. Can you expand Mm -hmm. on that a little bit?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. So there are entire books written on this. And the ones that everyone knows about are stuff like Tuskegee, right? But um, uh, one of the lesser known ones is is Puerto Rico, right? So when you look at the knowledge derived from the practice of medicine in the early 20th century, uh, one of the great unprosecuted crimes of the century was gynecology in Puerto Rico. So we know a lot about the female reproductive system. As a result of one particular doctor, I didn't mention it in my series because I didn't want to talk too much about colonization and all that. But basically, this fellow, I'll look his name up. You can maybe put him in the show notes. He had basically straight up racist views about Puerto Rican women. And so he tried all manner of things in terms of birth control against their wishes. He would dose them with the latest estrogen analog or progesterone analog that they had never tested in humans, but maybe he derived it from a, from a distilled pig ovary or something like that, right? And so a lot of these things where we were like, oh, yeah, how do we control births? How do we limit, you know, uh, how, do we, how can we develop an abortifacient? What does estrogen actually do? Stuff that I actually haven't written too much about yet has been built on the exploitation of brown women. There's like a rich literary history on this, which I'm gonna write about someday, but predominantly when you start to get into the, at least in the mid 20th century, a lot of the base stuff for our knowledge of reproductive health was built in situations like this. And that didn't get any better when we started going forward through that century. It actually kind of shifted. Our, knowledge, our primary knowledge gathering mechanisms shifted from black men, brown women, and all that to, believe it or not, we started doing most of our studies, and I could talk about this for like a whole podcast, but we just started doing a lot of our studies on college age white men, right? Because they're everywhere on university campuses. Another book that I'll probably talk about at some point is called Doing Harm by Maya Dusenberry, but she basically talks about how as a result of that we assume that the biology of men and women is equivalent. And we never really took that deep of a look at things like chronic pain, multiple sclerosis, chronic fatigue syndrome, and other inflammatory affective disorders. These are all features of depression, by the way. Like These these diseases are now coupled with depression. So a lot of our medical knowledge in two ways is really shitty. It's built on the absolute destruction of black and brown people. And then later on, we assume that we can sort of abstract away the differences in biology and use a lot of young college-age white men to say, how does the body actually work when it's experiencing inflammation and all that?
0: Right. That's really interesting and fucked up. Uh, (laughs) It's totally fucked up. Damn. (laughs) What's the medical gaze? Oh, yeah. I end up
1: talking about that in the next thing. Really. Yeah, honestly, it's very hard to do, right? But basically I was trying to get at what is the what is the sort of narrativity of medicine? Like how what is its narrative space? And what I mean by that is like, if you ask an average person on the street, what is what is medicine? What's the job of medicine? They'll be like, well, you know, it's supposed to, you know, uh, use the scientific method to understand diseases and find cures. And it's like, sure, that's like a really nice textbook explanation of it. But how does it do that? Well, one of the ways it does that is what I started to call the medical gaze. I'm still I didn't call it that I'm stealing that from uh, Michel Foucault. But basically, what he talks about is ways of seeing. So. How do you sort of step outside of this and say, how do doctors perceive things? How do they think about them? Right. So, the medical gaze and his thing, I'll kind of, it goes through stages, and the stages are made up. These don't just happen, right? He's not like saying everyone got together and said, this is the stage that we're in, and then we're going to go to that stage and the other one. No, he's just kind of looking back at history and philosophy and sociology and saying, these appear to be different movements that happen. The medical gaze started as a, a classification gaze around the time that Linnaeus uh, started classifying organisms. And we we had the first family trees and species, right? These were so popular in in the 1800s and 1700s, they started to be applied everywhere. Medical doctors in particular started to look at the body and say, like, you'll some of these are still around, right? But they would classify things like tuberculosis and then like an inflamed knee and then like an inflamed tongue into the same sort of disease because they share the common feature of inflammation. And then there were other approaches that tried to objectify diseases by the organ systems they affected, and on and on. And the problem was that when you got into the clinic, these were not really empirical. There wasn't any way to sort of say, like, okay, if this this thing I'm observing in the lung is really the same as a inflammation of, of inflammation of the knee. Then I should do this and that and the other, and the this that and the other never actually panned out. And people began to see that if you're doing things empirically in the clinic, you could end up getting better results. You could notice if someone has a fever. Plus, you know, uh, some other malady that that ends up going together more than trying to tie something random to a knee. Right. So he ended up calling this a clinical gaze. Right. And so we went from things we went from classification, objectification, reduction to empiricism. And I'd say today the medical gaze is very much statistical and i would just say that like in the same in the same spirit of foucault when you hear doctors talk about their practice when they lead you through a diagnosis they always use probabilistic language i had to go through this in october or november when my son was in the hospital for pneumonia they they're like well based on our evidence from the x-rays of the lung and based on his uh, clinical features we think that he has a pneumonia in this spot but it's really hard to tell because you know it's not a definitive image therefore we're going to go Like one times out of three, it ends up being treated by clindamycin, but it's really, you know, the trade-offs are this, that, and the other. And then the other times we're going to use ampicillin. It's a little, it works really well against pneumonia, but the trade-off is this. And they really think probabilistically. And if you ask why and you work backwards, you find that their gaze is very much informed by randomized controlled trials and this notion that you can pick an endpoint in that trial that... Is clinically relevant that you observe in the population and sometimes that's true where the effect size of that of that intervention is big enough and now it becomes clinical practice but most of the time they're really just trying to hedge between the fact that until you're a dead body and they can look at you they don't actually know with hundred percent certainty that it is the thing that they think right And that's kind of what the statistical medical gaze is. And I want people to understand that when doctors look at you through the statistical medical gaze, that truism about you're just a number is kind of true. But the point is, is that it neglects lived experience and physiology most of the time. And my evidence for that is none other than the stuff we talked about with squirrels and locusts, right? There is a lived functioning physiological serotonergic system that we are neglecting because the medical gaze has generated gigantic tables of SSRIs based on the subjective quiz outcomes of people who feel bad. (laughs) And that's basically what's going on. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. Um, So is the history of the medical industry evil, stupid or something else? Honestly, I
1: don't think that any – I think the medical industry, like going back to the seeing like a state argument, is that there's no one any more or any less evil in medicine than there are in any other institution. And I think that just like any other institution, when the powers that be within that institution seek to make sure that that the institution perpetuates itself, that it has a locus or scope of control – and that it justifies that control in some sciencey looking way, I'd say the outcome is going to be, in many ways, evil, stupid, and everything associated with that. Of course, the history of it, when I look backwards, we didn't even talk about the development of estrogen med- medicines, birth control, hormone replacement therapy, and the hundreds of thousands of women that killed. Like, but I'd say, like, yeah, absolutely. It's evil and stupid. And then there's just got a whole adjective space there that I'm not covering. But yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. OK, so in your opinion, what's the ideal approach to mental health in general? And what would that look like in a free society?
1: I think um, the ideal approach has to start with the fact that no one but you yourself in your embodiment of your own experience can really understand what I don't mean to say that all biology is individualized into complexity and incomprehensible. That is not what I'm saying. It's more a stance of you can't really go from one authority to another to truly make some sort of effective universal progress against better mental health. I really think that it starts with the fact that it starts with you, with a local sort of locus of control here. Like you have to be able to do some part of this yourself and make the progress yourself. If you consign yourself to some or another authority, you're gonna run into evil, stupid, or some other combination. And the ideal approach after that, once you sort of bought into that, that you have the resources, that you have the time and support to be able to do that. You know, I'm not making an ANCAP argument for mental health here, right? <laughs> like it all has to do with your environment as well. Once those things are in place, and you can actually do that, then I really think that this radically individualistic approach to mental health can pay off. And in a free society, I think that, notice nowhere in this argument did I necessarily say that SSRIs don't work. I think we need to radically expand the access to the drugs that work and the drugs that don't. I also think, kind of, I'll go through a few steps here. One of the ones I think in particular that could be super helpful is we need to run randomized controlled trials of the current standard of care mental health drugs against themselves. No one is incentivized to do that study for obvious reasons. And nobody in the pharma industrial complex is gonna go, hey guys, let's take uh, all of our top brand names in mental health and run them off against each other and see who wins, and see who wins for which people. Because they would be atomizing their own market right? It's much better for them if, you know, a revealed preference from a consumer or a preference from a doctor or what a preference from an insurance or payer comes through and pushes the drugs into the market. That way everyone wins. But no one is incentivized to say, given what we've developed, what actually works as the best drug for a person who's newly diagnosed as a person who failed it with X drug, right? Number one, you'd have to have some sort of system. Some of you have already done those tests, right? To say, here's what works. So radical access actual knowledge of what works and what doesn't, given the current status quo. The third one, I think, is definitely going to be something more like I mean, we just have to change the entire structure of work. <laughs> I think that's got to be one of the biggest ones. If you follow Young Neocon on Twitter, I think everything that he says about stuff like enclosure, private property, cars, public infrastructure, the resource usage of rural places versus urban, hyper urbanization he said, you know, good things about hyper urbanization. The point is that like literally the structure of suburban life, I think is destroying mental health in many ways. The uh, inability to walk and interact with other people when you want to, the inability of access to nature and closing nature, right? All those kind of things. We need to radically open up access to those things. We need to, to stop having cities constructed around cars. These are all the sort of like sociological things where you get rid of commuting, let everyone be a remote worker, abolish bosses, all kinds of things kinds of really pie in the sky shit and I talk about some of this stuff in the newsletter as well but you have to be able to the dominance hierarchy of work manifests itself in physiologically live depressive shitty states poor health outcomes all that kind of stuff if we had a free society around work that would be so such a big leap to eliminating mental health problems and then I think you come around to more nebulous things like meaning right and not just work, just mean, just sense, sources of meaning for people. Things that, you know, in our current sort of neoliberal milieu, it's almost as if if something doesn't make money, it's not a worth a quote unquote investment of your time, which already tells you how we think about these things, right? Yeah. Open up the space for more illegible things that aren't investments, but are just there just because, mm. right? Support people in arts, writing, all those kinds of things. Some of the shit I know is like pie in the sky. The other stuff, though, actionable things. Sunlight. Morning sunlight, None of, not enough of us get enough sunlight. There's been a multi-decade crusade against exposing yourself to the sun. If you look now, there's actually a little bit of that unraveling. I could send you some of the stuff you put in the show notes or whatever, but uh, recently the FDA said, hey, you know, the, the sunscreen meds that we've been telling you to take for decades are actually bad and they end up in your bloodstream. We're gonna do some research on how bad they are. working inside all day, not being exposed to the sun. The sun has, beyond vitamin D, it has very legit effects on how you use sugar, oxidative damage, the production and use of green foods you eat, which sounds radically, I'm happy to cite that one if anyone asks you later on, but sunlight, big deal. Movement, walking, right? Getting out there in the morning, getting a walk-in, not being sedentary. If you're you know, someone if you're working a job where that comes with the territory, good for you. And some that then you have to think about how do you take care of your body. Now, sort of the other top interventions All right. Cheap things that work. Despite this current dogma about food, when you look at a lot of the affective disorders like depression and chronic fatigue syndrome and anxiety disorders, all that kind of stuff, they all have common features of energy production problems. Sugar is actually good for you in this regard if you actually can use it. That means you're getting good nutrition in terms of vitamin 3, B7, B1, B2, all the ones that help you metabolize sugar effectively. Get, getting it, you're getting, you have access to a complete diet, and there are pretty cheap ways to do that as well. For the more precarious, I'm kind of happy to get into that later. Aspirin has been shown to have, it's super cheap, it's everywhere. I'm not recommending this, by the way, in case anyone's from the FDA is listening. But, um, these are not medical recommendations, but <laughs> aspirin, aspirin has been shown to have very strong effects, almost on the level of SSRIs. You know, you can get some experiment pretty easily. Theanine, which is a compound in teas, black teas, also has been shown to have very strong effects against anxiety. Progesterone, the quote unquote female hormone, men produce it as well in small quantities. It has very potent anti-anxiolytic effects. Coffee, gelatin, This fucking bougie broth movement that you've been seeing everywhere, people drinking beef broth and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. find a cheap way to make it. That stuff is super easy to make with bones. I've kind of gone through a lot of the dietary ones. Now, if you're four thieves vinegar or whatever, and you're like, what is like the cheapest or what is like the one of the most effective ways to combat depression I didn't even talk about this because it's coming up in my next essay, but the animal models to induce depression all involve increasing cortisol. So as far as if you ask a scientist, how do you make people depressed or how do you make animals, rats and you know squirrels and any other lab type animal you're trying to induce depression in a rabbit or whatever, they'll say, inject them with cortisol, right? And increased cortisol is a common feature of all depression, everyone has it. There are even genetic uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms tied to that. Just this year, they approved a drug called esketamine, ketamine. it's a spray drug and only your doctor is allowed to do it to you. So you have to literally go to your doctor and have them spray ketamine up your nose. Why am I talking about ketamine? Because ketamine is one of the most potent anti-cortisol agents out there and it has potent anti-serotonin effects as well. Isn't that curious that something that has anti-serotonin effects has been approved to treat depression by the fucking FDA? That's a little strange. But anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, this is not at all an endorsement of taking it. I'm not a doctor, so don't listen to me. But this is a pretty solid endorsement from the medical literature that ketamine is very effective against depression. Don't buy a pound of ketamine and throw yourself into a K-hole, obviously, this is an actual drug, right? It comes with costs, but the point is that if you were four thieves of vinegar and you were thinking, hmm, maybe this is something we could actually put out there, uh, or anyone else who's in, in autonomous medicine, this could be a very effective intervention for people to do themselves if they had the skills, right? And a couple other things, just the, the actually the last one, I'll cut it here because I'm talking about a lot of stuff. I'll say the drug, um, not drug, sorry, the hormone allopregnanolone it has actually been approved as a drug, a drug formulation, but has been approved to treat postpartum depression. It's very effective at alleviating this. So why do I bring it up? Because the SSRIs have something called a therapeutic delay. So when you're depressed and you go to your doctor, they're like, "Here, take a Prozac. It's going to take a while to work." They tell you this. They tell you it's the therapeutic delay. Now, why does the therapeutic delay happen? What actually ends up happening is that you know, I told, I went to the percentages of how people respond to these drugs, right? for the people who end up benefiting like after you know something like 14 to 30 to 60 days they end up experiencing like a relieving of their symptoms what's actually happening is fluoxetine Prozac in particular in addition to exacerbating the serotonin system and not always making it feel good it increases the production of this neurosteroid allopregnanolone in your brain Allopregnanolone is such an effective antidepressant that if you administer to it, people with it intravenously, it can make depression symptoms alle- be alleviated in twenty-four hours. So basically, the therapeutic delay is explained by allopregnanolone. If you can find a way to get allopregnanolone to make it to anything like that, that's a very, very effective drug for um, alleviating depression. I think that's everything I'd run through.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's a lot. A lot of good information in there too. I was wondering, do you have any policy positions? I'm sure you're critical of intellectual property and that plays a large role in sort of skewing the captured market that exists right now. Mm -hmm. But what should we do now to help fix the problems surrounding mental health and the medical industry in general?
1: Mm, Well, you correctly predicted that I think we should abolish medicine, actually. (laughs) What does that mean? For me, uh, what it means is, and I got some flack on this for Twitter the other day because I, you know, I have scientist friends still and like people who follow me because I talk shit about science that they sort of agree with. You know, it's talking about medicine and how you have something like two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand deaths per year, and it's not—we don't know if that's because it's a bad outcome caused by the standard of care or if it's shitty doctors. No one has ever looked into that. But one of my good friends uh, was like. Uh, hey, you never met a proximate cause you didn't want to punch in the face, <laughs> right? So what can we do now to fix the problems we see surrounding mental health? I honestly don't think that any policy position can really um, help it. I think that the ones that could have help that I would have said in the past could help it, we've already tried and seen that they don't help. I mean things like you know lowering the bar for getting products to market faster. It doesn't work, right, from the FDA. The, the numbers are already there. Pre-registering studies before you do them to make sure the effect size persists doesn't work. Doesn't really do anything the one of some of the things that might work i actually mentioned already which was that perhaps you find a source of funding or public funding through the nsf or the nih that is explicitly there to test what is the best drug amongst the standard of care for a given psychographic or a given uh group of people with a particular type of outcome on the hamilton depression scale or you know the scale they use to decide if you're depressed or not right that could maybe get you somewhere, but again, the industry will never—I would think—would never sponsor it. You know, we're talking about like maybe a billion-dollar study, and they'd probably actively work to fight it, <laughs> right? Because they're—they don't want anyone to figure out what that is. The things that we can do to help fix our problems now, I think, really have to lie outside of the system. Unfortunately, I think it's—it lies in things like the possibilities that people like forthies Vinegar are working on, or it lies in the fact that you know, if you have access to a computer and time. You can look at things like uh, Google Scholar and look at the real things that are actually happening with depression, find the cheap stuff that works like vitamin B3, B1, B2, all that other stuff that I mentioned, and take it into your own hands. Because institutionally, I just don't see any way forward. The one way I will say, not a policy position, but I think that talk therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, even cognitive behavioral therapy If there are resources out there for you to either get access to these, if we can increase access to those with some kind of policy measure, I haven't seen anything out there for it. In fact, the state has been doing everything they can to take away access to those things. They're pretty evidence-based ways to actually address depression with uh, rational procedures, particularly CBT. And if anything, the bare minimum we could do there is educating social workers to perform these procedures and expanding access to them. But I'm not going to really throw in my hat in with things like, uh, let's train cops how to do CBT, right? Like shit like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not really. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, would you recommend that cops get their chakra aligned?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think they should stop being cops and get their chakras aligned. Absolutely. Okay,
0: okay, yeah. cool, yeah. cool.
1: If that's the deal, I'm all for it. <laughs>
0: all right, so changing subjects here a little bit. Uh, if you're comfortable with it, I'd like to talk about gambling. Oh, sure. So how did you become a professional gambler and what was that like?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I don't recommend it, first of all. I think it had a lot to do with my own depression. Oh, but
0: damn.
1: I was in grad school and I was a shithead who asked too many questions and I wasn't really going, I wasn't interested in finishing. And uh, I had been in a grad student game, actually. It was just a small cash game, like 10 bucks, 10 bucks buying tournament every week. It was fun. I was pretty much crushing that game, and then I, this was like two thousand eight, and people used to talk about you know I was like oh well there's online online gambling still exists I had tried it like three years before and lost like hundred bucks and never did it again, but I was like well it was maybe a year before I quit and I put some money online and I ended up just kind of turning a thousand bucks into like fifty pretty quickly and I was like wait okay this is a lot of money I should figure out what I'm doing so yeah, I like
0: yeah, yeah. I ended up. Uh, now?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I went online, the two plus two poker forums are still around. I did that. I started to get into the mathematics of poker by Bill Chen. I read a bunch of books. I don't think all of them were useful, but theory of poker and mathematics of poker are pretty useful. There's like businesses popping up around with that were actually like pros were walking through their thought process and discussing hands. And I, you know, gave them some money and eventually I discovered, you know, in my own practice and like working in the lab, I had already been exposed to things like Bayesian statistics and Bayesian probabilistic inference because of the work we were doing. And then I was like, hmm, there seems to be a very Bayesian process if you want to see it in the things that we're doing in this game of uncertainty, right, of incomplete knowledge. Because poker is basically that. Uh, It's a game where, you know, you have incomplete information of what's going on at any point. Not not like chess, where you have complete information at every move. And so statistics like Bayesian statistics, this is a very, very good application of them, basically, where you can say, given the state of my knowledge currently, how do I update as new inputs come in? I mean, I can kind of go through that, the equation for this, just so people are like, what the shit is Bayes, right? Bayes, it derives something they call the posterior probability. It's a conditional probability that is assigned after you look at like relevant evidence for something, after that evidence is taken into account. And that posterior probability's likelihood depends on the prior likelihood of it being true and a sort of derivation of observed data. The, a simple way to say it is basically you have a prior belief of something being true after you observe some kind of evidence that's related to that prior probability how do you update your beliefs based on ingesting that new information so when you think about poker the application is pretty simple it's like i have an entire history of hands with a person if i'm playing online especially i know exactly how often they raise how often they fold how often they limp or how often they call and i also have the hit my own intuitive experience of having played them maybe for a thousand hands so how do I update based on the last action they took, what they li- What the likely range of hands is that they have, right? And that's kind of how I got into bridging those two worlds, because you'd use Bayesian statistics often in the work that we were doing with optical traps, lasers, and the probabilistic systems we were looking at in terms of which DNA is doing what on what piece of protein and all that kind of stuff.
0: Okay, okay. How might Bayesian statistics be useful in political analysis?
1: Well, man, I shudder to think about a political analysis informed by Bayesian statistics only because it is a tool like anything else. It's not a god. I think it all has to do with how you're organized. If you gave Bayesian statistics to our current political milieu and said, hey, here's a new tool for you to predict the effective outcomes of your policies. I mean, I'm not sure you'd get that much radically different things than you already get because like anything else, the problem with Bayes is that your prior probabilities, it has nothing to say about them. So basically what, what that means is you have to come in into Bayes with priors. What I'm basically saying is that the priors of the current political system are pretty shitty. They're based on things like, uh, you know, just look at what the priors are for a Republican-controlled Congress and bodily autonomy. If the question you were asking to analyze with Bayesian statistics was like, how do we use policy to reduce the number of women who are killed or who die in childbirth? It really matters if your prior probability coming into that is like the number of childbirths is far too high, right? If your prior for it is that, right? Versus like which is like what Warren's is, right? But then if you look at some of the more reactionary pieces of shit, I shudder to think what they would do with a tool like that in their hands where they could actually enact policy with it it could be really bad. So I absolutely think that in the right hands, Bayes would be great. It'd be a really iterative way to get to better policy outcomes. And you'd be able to do things like say, you know, we ran an experiment and this is what happened. And we need to stop doing that. And we need to wind it down. But I just don't think it's possible right now in the current political milieu.
0: Okay, fair enough. Is there any type of gambling that is statistically more likely to reap success?
1: Uh, none of the ones that are table games in any ga- in any casino, <laughs> basically. All the ones that if, if you're walking by them and you're not play- and you're playing against the house, I just avoid all of those, basically. If you want to put in the time, poker can be beat because you're playing against other people. The only thing you have to watch out for is the take of the house, the rake. But other than that, <laughs> the answer is no. Every single one of the table games is rigged against you. don't ever play them.
0: And uh, I guess penny slots are out of the question also?
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Unless you like being a part of a Rube Goldberg machine that turns one cent into a fraction of a cent repeatedly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to get back into some of what you've written and have also had published – You wrote an article that was published at the Center for a Stateless Society called Evading the State is Good for You, Upland Natives, Valley Civilizations, Mitochondria, and Carbon Dioxide. Why did you decide to write this article and what is it all about?
1: Yeah, this one actually came on a lark. So I've had, you know, I've had my own sort of health problems. But uh, one thing that I noticed in my own experience was that when I go to high altitude, a lot of those things get better or go away. And I had always wondered why. And I started to look into that after a friend of mine was like, he had just noticed that and told me, he's like, yeah, I actually think living at high altitude is probably better anyway. You seem to do better there. And I was like, what? Oh, that's a good point. So then I kind of looked into this, and there exists like reams of literature on the effects of living at high altitude. There are WHO meetings, World Health Organization meetings from the 70s with meetings minutes, entire meetings built around what's happening with people at altitude. Why are they going contra our predictions about, uh, say, cosmic radiation and all that, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, I was looking at that, and at the same time, I happened to be reading Scott's book, The Art of Not Being Governed, which is about the region Zomia. So I was reading that book and I was thinking about problems like this and, he had email, and my buddy had emailed me and I sort of made the connection of like, well, if your health is directionally sort of better and your production of energy is better at literally of actual production of energy in your cells is more efficacious at high altitude, does that have anything to say about the possibilities for social organization, right? Like, is there any sort of overlap between those ideas? And that's kind of where that started because uh, I thought it was pretty interesting to see that people who were escaping the state successfully for decades had managed to find sources of food for themselves that were much more nutritious than that. They also benefited from a lower oxygen environment because oxygen does kind of present challenges, not present challenges, but the oxidation of things is damaging to cells. And that's kind of just a consequence of being alive. When you have less oxygen, there's less damage crudely. Right. So I thought that was pretty cool. I wanted to explore like the fact that when you look at new studies that are coming out in rats and subjecting them to psychological stress, they respond in very similar ways to how we do when we're say stuck in traffic or have had a bad argument or are running for our lives. So I thought it was interesting to see like even down to the level of their mitochondria, they're affected in their own sense of what they can accomplish or not. I'm talking about rats here because the situation they were put in was restraint stress. And this is an old experiment that proves the existence of something called learned helplessness. And learned helplessness exists in humans as well. So I thought it was really interesting to say, what if you're at high altitude, you're actually getting benefits to social organization in addition to the biological ones?
0: Besides the Southeast Asians you mentioned in your article, are there any other examples of people living without a state in present time?
1: I think so, but also I'll make sure I shape my definition that's correctly. And I, this is mine of my fault. The Southeast Asians that I talk about, they're not stateless people. They're escaping from the state that's trying to bring them under control very much in that legibility way, right? Well, aren't, so they, like,
0: aren't they at least kind of nomadically stateless?
1: In some ways, yes. And in other ways, they're like, you know, it's not like states are like fighting themselves for control of that. Like, there's like one state entity that's like, these motherfuckers are going to come out under our control or whatever. Right. And they have very interesting strategies for evading the state, man. Like, David Graeber and a couple other people go into this, but they'll do things like, Everyone in this small group of 100 will have a different type of name, and then like they'll set up literally temporary housing. They'll meet the bureaucrat, and by the next morning, they're gone a thousand feet up, and there's no way that guy can get them. It's really funny how they did bullshit like this. But the point being, There are definitely other examples of people living without a state in our present time, and I think this is why there's really strong sort of internationalist movements. I'm not really an internationalist, but there are internationalist movements being built between uh, Native Americans and Palestinians, for instance, right? Like, Palestinians are basically stateless right now, and that is why their struggle is so important to any anarchist, I think. And the other one, which may be a little unpopular, is Afghans, my people, I would say they're effectively stateless because the Afghan state is toothless and they've essentially defeated the United States military after 18 years of war, if you ask me. <laughs> right? Like The Taliban, which speaks for a lot of the stateless people in Afghanistan, are effectively negotiating with the American government to get them the fuck out of, Amer- uh, out of Afghanistan. Yeah. So the definition of Zomia sometimes includes Afghans, but mostly it's confined to that Southeast Asian area, but they're a perfect example. That's a country, average elevation 5,000 feet, all kinds of mountainous areas to escape state control. And they've been doing it for thousands of years, effectively.
0: (laughs) I wonder how the military, US military occupation has affected that area as far as sort of uh, autonomous organization is concerned.
1: I like talking about them, but I also don't like talking about them because the Taliban are fucked up. They have features of fascism to a lot of what they do and they shouldn't be lauded as any kind of a good example. But the people themselves, not all of them are Taliban, right? There are a lot of people who are just like, I'm not going to be a member of a state and I'm going to live. And, you know, this is where I've lived. This is my land, right? So that's just how it works. And so it's not correct to say that all of them are Taliban, but you don't really want to give like a tacit ad- <laughs> a tacit admission of like, yeah, that's OK, because that's definitely not.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. Are there any past examples of stateless people that you can think of that might be worth noting?
1: Oh, yeah. Like, I think the ones that I found to be the most interesting, which I think hold a lot of promise for us, are the maroon communities of uh, Central and South America and even the Caribbean. So people who formed really strong bonds between whites, slaves and natives and enslaved Africans and the native indigenous people of those places who escaped state control all of them that kind of fit this larger sort of maroon community that includes like people who are escaping in Florida, part of the former Seminoles all the way down to like the tips of Guinea and all that kind of stuff. Point being, I think those are worth noting because they point to things like, especially when you talk to normal people about like moralizing about the past. This is one of my favorite things to do is when you go like, there's nothing to lionize there. Your, your gods are shitty. Your founders were shitty. Stop worshiping these people. And they're like, Oh, well you can't judge them by the morality of today. And it's like, uh, you can though. (laughs) Because there are people who existed in those very times who are doing the things that we're not doing today that were right. Mm. <laughs> right. And that's why I think especially stateless people are a good example of this. And I'm mostly pulling this one out of uh, Peter Gelderloos's, uh, I believe it was How Anarchy Works, or, or no, Anarchy Works. He yeah. talks a lot about the Maroons, and I think they're a great example.
0: Okay. What are your thoughts on anthropology and the way anarchism has interacted with it?
1: I'll tell you, I've read a lot of the modern stuff and I'm only getting into the older stuff like pure Clastres and all that. But I'll say that from what I've seen, a lot of this shit just really is like at its core, like white supremacist. Like it has a really Western gaze to it, you know, and I'm not saying anarchism and anthropology, I'm saying anthropology itself. And mm-hmm. I think that that sort of institutional gaze followed through to anarchism as well. And I think we have to do a lot of work to make sure we don't inherit that baggage and I don't think we are really when I look at some of the stuff like Marshall Solins, Pierre Clastries, and uh, even even David Graeber to some extent. Other than his work with Madagascar, he hasn't really touched that kind of stuff. But I think there are definitely good possibilities there. And I think that we need to reclaim anthropology in particular because it, it makes very concrete what legibility is because it shows you what human experience and human organization is as much as you really can get like a direct access to it. Because otherwise you're left to the narratives of history and these sort of like abstracted objects of what people are, which is the wrong direction. It's really more towards like making things legible.
0: Yeah. How do you think we appreciate anthropology without without falling into some sort of like super trad mode, you know, like, isn't it (laughs) like aren't, you know, isn't that kind of a conservative way of thinking about things? Totally, dude. I, I completely agree because, I mean, how many how many of us,
1: whomst amongst us, doesn't know a primi who looks at this stuff and goes, see, numbers are bad. <laughs> right?" Like that ends up being a problem. <laughs> I completely agree. What, what I think it does, though, is I do think that I'm going to pronounce, I'm going to fuck this up. I think that the Haudenosa, the people that were Haudenosaunee, what we call the Iroquois Confederacy, you know who we basically stole the democratic system that became America from in a lot of ways it's important for us to be able to have a meta-rational perspective on this stuff. We don't need to look backwards in the past and be regressive. We don't need to look back at it and say that stuff worked, therefore we should go back to that. We really need to be forward-facing. And I didn't even—I ta- don't really talk about this stuff because I haven't written about it yet. But a lot of the stuff I'm really excited to write about is stuff about uh, this guy Robert Keegan and this other guy David Chapman. They talk about—it's um, a little made up, but it's like you know, uh, uh, stages of civilization. They have five stages, and the point being that like stage one is the individual; it's a person. Your average everyday toddler, very self-centered, doesn't have a sense of the other. Stage two is kind of like they've developed into my five-year-old or six-year-old. He has a sense of other people in the world, and there's agency in it. Stage three is communal living. You know, people who uh, have strict rules that are very trad, basically, <laughs> like rules for deriving knowledge, what you can and can't do, and people call this the choiceless mode which I think is a very good name for it. It basically tells you that like, y- there are no choices, you can't pick a spouse, you can't pick who which you are, you follow very strict rules, into, it's very trad, right? Stage four is modern systematic bureaucracy. It's what we live in for the most part. But by Keegan's estimates, only 30% of the civil, of, of people who live in Western civilizations or modern civilizations are even function at a stage four level where they can have multiple selves, right? Where they have a business, a, a self at work, a self at home, and they can manage these identities, right? It's a, This is a developmental psychology thing at its core. And stage five is like a meta-rational perspective. It's basically saying like stepping outside of your various selves and saying, which ones are working for us, for my group, for my... If you want to be a nation, if you want to be a statist, the nation state, how do these things blend together? How do we make progress with them? I think that for us, looking at these various stagings, if we are to make any use of them at all, we've got to be able to look backwards and say, that's an interesting one. That's an interesting thing. That's an interesting way to you know, do this and that and the other. But we should always be trying to progress beyond a trad system or even a modern systematic bureaucracy, because I've spent a lot of time telling you how much that sucks, because you pretend to full epistemologies and full complete uh, ontologies you can predict the future, you're an eternalist, and that shit is not true, right? And primis are kind of the same too. Primies are just saying, we should be trads because we know what happens when we get to stage four. It's all bad. And humans are bad, and more agency is bad, (laughs) right?
0: Right, right. I've got a couple Patreon questions that I'd like to throw your way. Sure. Uh, I know you have a complicated relationship, if not an adversarial relationship, with the title Utopia, but this is Mm -hmm. the way it's framed. Can I get a cappuccino in your imagined political utopia? And if so, how?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, no, you can't because my imagined political utopia doesn't exist. (laughs) 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 But I guess if you could get a cappuccino in my version of utopia – the The way that it would work is, at the very least, we would have solved a lot of the problems of this of slavery in the supply chain. So a lot of the things that we've talked about relative to blockchain contracts and being able to tell people where stuff comes from, we would not have kept things illegible. We would have actually made things legible, but with bottom-up characteristics. That's what I think a utopia, at least, would have to look at look at look like from my perspective. We can't have top-down legibility. We've got bottom-up legibility. We've handled the problems of informational asymmetry and information processing but from the bottom up and it empowers all of us. So what does that look like? Well, we'd kind of know you'd be able to contract with maybe a collective of people who decided that they're going to be a a group of people who grows coffee in one particular part of the area for so long, and they're going to share profits and maybe it'll be on a blockchain and they'll uh, all opted into how they're going to do it. And we've decided, Hey, we're going to buy some of that coffee and they've accepted whatever our currency is. Maybe we don't even have currency. Maybe it's a trade of some other kind. I think currency actually does solve some interesting problems. I wouldn't necessarily abolish it, but, uh, (laughs) the point being that those people have decided that they can organize and disassemble whenever they want and we or me or you (laughs) have decided that you're going to give them something in exchange for that it's legible to everybody and the most important thing we managed to do is made sure that no one has really kind of imposed on anyone else because of the structures of organization god
0: damn okay (laughs) that was badass man
1: (laughs) I'm just making it up as I go, man. But thanks.
0: <laughs> that works. Okay. All right. The second Patreon question is: Where should anarchists visiting Portland go to check out the scene?
1: Oh, so man, that's actually a much better question for someone like William Gillis because i I work for I, I work with some people that you know I won't really name. But when you're when you're out here, I'll tell you a lot of the stuff around here. From what I've seen. In 2010, 2012, um, there was a lot of shit that went down in Portland, but one of the ones I'd say that you should check out is the Social Justice Action Center in Southeast. Um, I don't know if these people still meet, but there was usually a PDX anarchist general assembly there up until like a couple of years ago. That usually happened in January. They have a little info shop there as well. Great places to read. Um, and there were some really cool reading groups. PDX Black Cross in particular, you can contact them through their website. I mean, you should be familiar with Black Cross, hopefully everyone who's listening. But um, there's also, they've worked with in the past, the Anars Info Shop and Community Center. I don't know if Anars is still around. That was a few years ago as well. But it's out in North Portland and should be easy to Google. Definitely worth checking out. And I'm not going to name any other names, but there are definitely some groups who are doing some awesome work on uh, uh, homeless solidarity against against what the cops are doing out here to the uh, 10 cities and all that.
0: Yeah. okay. There's a lot
1: to check out on that front.
0: Awesome. So towards the end of these interviews, I like to do a lightning round where I name a thinker or an idea and I have my guests respond to each item in one minute or less. Are you down? Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Psychoanalysis,
1: probably total garbage when it first came about. We should probably pick it up and try to see if we can make any progress with it, because the current system completely neg- neglects like personal meaning structures at the expense of radically rationalizing everything away with medicine.
0: Racial realism.
1: Oh God, kill it all! Just anyone who has that idea, just get rid of it. <laughs> Ugh, disgusting. Turns my stomach.
0: Neo reactionaries. Oh, neo-reactionaries.
1: God. Well, first, there's like one in a hundred of them are smart and we can learn something from them. They just end up with awful conclusions. Just terrible. Tankies. Oh, yeah. Tankies. My recommendation to you is read Commune Magazine because Commune Magazine seems to be poison pill anarchism for tankies. There's something about horizontalism or mutual aid or uh, anti-authoritarianism sprinkled into every article. I recommend it for you, tankies. It's good medicine
0: scientism uh
1: one of the top five or ten greatest evils of our time uh as none other than that i point to things like the ascendance of the intellectual dark web the inability to destroy nazism and fascism uh and really just the dark side of the enlightenment, though I kind of hate, kind of, that sounds like I'm saying, and saying the dark enlightenment is good. What I mean is one side of the coin gives us you know, scientific rationality, the ability to ask questions, models of nature, and you know, the bridge from natural philosophy. The other side of it justifies things like the scientific classification of all of human activity, which is obviously bad.
0: The DSM.
1: Oh, it should be abolished. Total nonsense, pseudoscience, just a book of fancy rituals that's probably no better than, you know, like things like the Necronomicon.
0: Agnosticism.
1: Oh, I don't actually have a stance on that one, though. I am an atheist. I guess I don't have any problem with it. But uh, I guess you don't really decide not to make any of your own epistemic bets, I see. And that's fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tony Gibson.
1: Oh, Tony Gibson. Gotta respect the, um, I hope I can act like that if conscription or anything like that comes my way, (laughs) but very much respect that guy.
0: Badass. That's the way you goddamn do the fucking lightning round. (laughs) Nice. All right. Are there any on the ground liberatory projects that you are currently excited about?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Mutual aid, disaster relief. I heard about after I had done certified emergency responder training, which is what the uh, first of all, I'm not a cop, but second, uh, it's what people, it's what FEMA, it's what FEMA like certifies citizens in and like how to actually respond to disasters. It's centralized and shitty. And I was like, this is dumb, but I learned some cool, a few cool skills from it. And then I heard about mutual aid disaster relief, which I think is really cool. Uh, the type of thing we should be doing, particularly within the next like 20 years when shit really hits the fan with climate change. And the other one I've talked about a lot, I really respect what Four Thieves Vinegar and Michael Laufer are doing. I think that those are really awesome projects that hold some strong liberatory potential, especially for the hundreds of millions of people who are suffering from diabetes and the you know tens of millions who have, who have to uh, use EpiPens.
0: What's your advice to people just becoming interested in anarchist ideas?
1: Uh, I would say you got to get first a really good mix of doing versus theory because there's definitely a tendency to get too much into the theory and reading a lot about it when most of it is going to be doing it. So find people like you who think about the same things you do, think of projects together, get shit done. You got to take care of yourselves first. Burnout is huge amongst activists, especially ones I know here in Portland. That self-care shit is kind of a trope, but it's also true. So do that so that you can actually do anarchism.
0: What's the next topic you plan to tackle for your newsletter? Oh, I plan to put a bunch of the stuff that I talked
1: about down into a, another newsletter that says what is the an actual fr- actually fruitful theory of depression. Uh, you know, I talked a lot about cortisol and I talked a lot about inflammation. Um, I want to just put that with all the references down. The next thing I want to talk about is. Here in Portland, there was a – recently at TechFest, there was a Smart Cities initiative. It was a couple months ago. It was in April where some guy from Tel Aviv came down and talked about how they're turning the city smart with technology. And that means like basically giving citizens access to stuff like you know telling people about potholes and reporting crimes and all that and how well it's going in Tel Aviv. And I want to actually write a thing about that because there were some BDS protesters who disrupted them and that made some very good points. Uh, I want to talk about how that overlaps with the seeing like a state concepts of legibility and also why we should be resisting smart cities.
0: Where can people go to subscribe to your newsletter and how can they support you? Uh, right. So against utopia.com is the
1: best place to go. There is a weekly newsletter and an essay newsletter. I'm probably going to condense them into one because it's confusing for people. Uh, you can also find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash against utopia. And on Twitter as well. You can find me at against utopia. Um, a lot of my posts, there are mostly shit posts and retweets. So, you know, prepare yourself.
0: When are and- you going to do your podcast or your YouTube channel?
1: oh right yeah i gotta get on that i think uh, i did a i did a fake product podcast of sorts with a friend of mine for about two hours it went pretty well so i'm thinking probably by the end of june you'll maybe see one and the first episode will probably just be me doing a little overview of the main points of the serotonin series and perhaps telling people what they can actually do
0: hell yeah your twitter is at against utopia right that's right jahed moman i had a blast talking with you everyone needs to check out his newsletter and also follow him on twitter thanks again so much for coming on the show all right jahed we'll talk to you soon all right
1: nice chatting with you too and uh
0: thanks for listening of course folks I hope everyone enjoyed my conversation with Jahed Momand if you liked this episode be sure to check out our full catalog at nonservium.media we also have our older in-person video interviews you can check out there as well anyways huge shout out to my patrons for helping me keep this thing going I truly appreciate your support and couldn't do it without you if you're a regular listener of the show and would like to see us continue please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash non-servium media And if you can't help financially, but would like to see us reach a larger audience, consider telling a friend about us. Of course, simply liking and sharing these conversations will help out as well. If you want to stay updated with our most recent episodes, subscribe to our YouTube to receive notifications every time we release new content. You can also follow me on Twitter to stay updated with our most recent happenings. My handle is at JoelAnthonyA3. Anyways, thanks again for tuning in to another episode, and be sure to keep an eye out for the next one. Now get out there and do some anarchy for goodness sake. We'll talk to you soon.